From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, April 25th. I'm Marco Werman. A group working with Syrian activists has some of its claims questioned. The group says it helped injured photographer Paul Conroy escape from homes. He says it didn't. When I was being rescued from Babar Amra, nobody identified themselves as a Baz. They were all free Syrian army people I knew. And later, enjoying the verbal poetry of a self-described Tourette's hero. Ha! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! I have regular ticks. Biscuit like biscuit and happy birthday. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, presenting Frontline's Money, Power, and Wall Street. Four years after the financial crisis exploded, are we safer? The investigation goes on in Washington, U.S. banks, and the looming troubles in Europe. Tuesday, May 1st at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. France today threatened to up the ante on Syria. French officials said they may seek a United Nations resolution authorizing military intervention in Syria unless the Syrian government stops attacking its own citizens soon. Again today, there were reports of several people killed by government forces. Those reports came, as they often do, from a network of opposition activists both in and out of Syria. The BBC's Bridget Kendall prepared this report on a group that's been instrumental in helping the activists get their message out. This is pieces of it. Look, these are all the mortar bombs they've been hit with. Standing by a heavily shelled building in Homs, a young British Syrian activist called Danny sifts through debris as he talks. One of the hundreds of videos put on YouTube in recent months to draw attention to life in Syria under siege. We're asking for the UN to help us. We're asking for the Arab League to help us. Anyone, anyone, any kind of humanity in their heart. Danny isn't on his own, though. He's been equipped and trained by the global campaign movement, Avaz, which early on decided to use its clout to magnify the voice of the Syrian opposition around the world. Launched in 2007, Avaz has grown fast. Its website says its membership is over 14 million worldwide. And it's the members who fund it and decide on its campaigns, as I heard from Avaz founder and director, Rikan Patel. We've seen a new model of people-powered politics, and my organization is taking that model global. Everything that we run is first tested and polled with random samples of our membership. But how reliable is the information Avaz promotes coming from its network inside Syria? I asked its representative in Beirut, Wissam Tarif, how he selected the activists he worked with. The criteria for us is to work with citizen journalists we know will say the facts. Have we received some videos that weren't accurate? Yes, and it were from sources that we've just started working with. But when we work with citizen journalists that we have established one year of work relation, that rarely, rarely happens. But not everyone thinks accuracy is Avaz's strong point. 
In a hospital in central London, the photographer Paul Conroy is still recovering from injuries received during the shelling in Baba Amr in Homs, which killed his Sunday Times colleague, Mary Colvin. He was eventually smuggled out, but when he got to Beirut, he was taken aback to find Avaz was claiming it had been part of the rescue mission. When I was being rescued from Baba Amr, nobody identified themselves as Avaz. They were all free Syrian army people I knew. The cameraman from Avast attempted to come with me in the car with the Free Syrian Army, but they refused, and uh, my only dealings with them ever since are correcting mistakes. You know, I only saw them when they started appearing on telly. Afterwards, claiming to have arranged my escape, 23 people died, which I had great issue with. They issued an apology saying it was phrased wrong, but it's not good enough. That's gone around the world. People very seldom listen to apologies. Wizam Tarif insists Avaz did play a role in the rescue, which Paul may not have been aware of. When Paul was inside Bab Amr, had no uh, idea. It wasn't clear for him what was happening outside of the place he was in. Avaz established a crisis room in Beirut where Paul's editors were in the room. And in such circumstances, we don't take decision. Our role is to facilitate and coordinate. But Paul Conroy still has reservations about an organisation that seems so eager to grab the limelight. They've made such a display of getting into Syria and operating within Syria that, in fact, they've become part of the story as opposed to helping the people get the story out. So does Avaz acknowledge it also has an interest in promoting itself? <laughs> no, that's absolutely not true. We work long time for almost a year without publicizing our work. Avaz is not after publicity. Avaz is a community of 14 million people. Our work speaks for itself. Actually, a lot of our work we don't even talk about. It may well be that movements like Avaz are changing the rules of the game when it comes to reporting conflict. But perhaps as its influence grows, so too should Avaz's accountability. The BBC's Bridget Kendall reporting. In Egypt, it's still all about what comes after the revolution. The country is getting ready for a presidential election next month. The previous parliamentary elections, Egypt's first after the revolution, were dominated by Islamist parties. That's raised concerns among more secular Egyptians. Those concerns were heightened yesterday when an Egyptian court upheld a conviction against Adel Imam. He's one of Egypt's most popular comedians. The actor was convicted of offending Islam in his films and sentenced to jail. Reporter Ursula Lindsay is following the story in Cairo. Uh, Tell us who exactly Adel Imam is and how popular is his work in Egypt. He's really one of Egypt's best-known actors and probably one of the best-known throughout the Middle East. He's had a career of close to five decades, and he's really a very well-known name in Egyptian cinema. And so what kind of films does he make, and what are the objections that are now being raised to his work? Well, he's made every kind of film, but in quite a few, both dramas and comedies of the 80s and 90s, he portrayed in a quite broad, stereotypical way sometimes characters that were Islamists or fundamentalist. You know, he would portray characters wearing, you know, fake beards and... The objections that are being raised are to some of these portrayals or to remarks made about religion in movies that were really quite broad comedies. So who's behind the charges that his work is insulting to Islam? Well, the case has been brought forward by an Islamist lawyer. There are quite a few lawyers who bring these kinds of cases and tend to have Islamist sympathies and connections and support. 
It's not an uncommon charge. It's one that's deployed quite regularly. In Egypt, is it possible for any lawyer to initiate a case like this? Yes, it is. And so this kind of basically censorship through legal harassment is something that is a common technique. The difference now perhaps is that as Egypt has witnessed the legalization of Islamist groups, the great electoral victories of Islamist parties recently, of course, Islamist groups and their supporters feel that they are ascendant and are emboldened, and the courts themselves may be more likely to lend a sympathetic ear to these kinds of charges. So, Ursula, what's been the reaction in Egypt to this conviction? Well, among artists and people who work in the cultural field, it's seen as a very worrisome sign of the kinds of censorship that artists could face. I mean, both because of his very high profile and because the basis for the charges seems so flimsy. I mean, if this is the kind of portrayal that can lead to a three-month jail term, then artists are obviously very worried that further kinds of charges like this could be deployed against anybody. Most people hearing this interview are probably thinking, but they just had a revolution in Egypt. So what have the political changes in the ouster of Mubarak meant for freedom of expression in Egypt, both in the arts and elsewhere? Well, actually, artists have really pushed to have greater freedom of expression for themselves. You've seen an explosion of artistic activity, you know, street festivals, public concerts, movie screenings, all sorts of unlicensed, freewheeling cultural activity that would not have been possible before. On the other hand, the laws have not been changed. So the possibility of taking someone to court on this charge of insulting Islam is still there. And in fact, with this new 75% Islamist parliament, the Islamist majority is reportedly drafting a new law that would regulate censorship of movies and film. Reporter Ursula Lindsay in Cairo, thank you very much. Thank you. Israelis are celebrating their two biggest state holidays this week. Independence Day is tomorrow, commemorating the day Israel declared itself an independent state 64 years ago. Today is Remembrance Day, when Jewish Israelis mourn the deaths of fallen soldiers and victims of terror attacks. But as the world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem, the two days of commemoration also highlight deep divisions in Israel, even among those trying to promote peaceful coexistence between Arabs and Jews. About 2,000 people took part in an alternative Memorial Day event last night in Tel Aviv. The idea was to honor all of the people who've died in the Middle East conflict, both Israeli and Palestinian. A group called Combatants for Peace organized the event. They're former Israeli soldiers and Palestinian militants. Mohammed Awaida is a Palestinian from East Jerusalem who spent time in an Israeli jail. Even on this difficult day of the year, he says, Jews and Arabs still share the experience of loss and pain for all those who've died. Awaida says this ceremony is about building mutual respect. If you respect your enemy, he will respect you, then you will go to solution. But if you will hide from him, you will never go with him to solution. Sitting next to one of his Jewish-Israeli colleagues and a fellow activist, Awaida says the current political stalemate is working against them. Negotiations are stuck, he says, and then there's ongoing Jewish settlement building in the West Bank in East Jerusalem. There is no peace and there is no conversations 
and the settlement is making my work and his work is so difficult because what I can tell my people and what he can tell his people, everything is frozen. Awida concedes that many Palestinians would condemn him for taking part in a public event with Israelis while the occupation continues. And just outside, there's more disapproval. A couple of dozen protesters waved Israeli flags and denounced the Tel Aviv ceremony for glorifying terrorists. In a speech in Jerusalem today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talked about national unity on this Memorial Day. But what makes that so difficult are two profoundly conflicting national narratives about these two days of national reflection. While Israelis commemorated Memorial Day today and will celebrate Independence Day tomorrow, Palestinians mark the founding of the State of Israel as their Nakba, or catastrophe. The hand-in-hand school in Jerusalem, kindergarten through 12th grade, is one of the few places in Israel where Jewish and Arab kids go to school together. The place is all about promoting coexistence, and that makes Memorial Day tricky. A mixed high school class of Arab and Jewish students discusses a documentary they just viewed about a suicide bombing. The idea is to let the students deal with tough issues through dialogue, says education director Inas Deep. But she calls today a very difficult day. We're still in a process. We try to learn what is the best way, what is the right way, but it's a very tense. We have to allow for ourselves to accept each other's feelings, to talk about them, and this is difficult. I mean, but getting them together now does not mean that we solved everything. Deep says this is the only day of the year students here are divided up. Jews attend one ceremony, while Arabs have separate activities. But they're careful to end the day together by gathering in the courtyard to release a heart-shaped balloon with the word love on it. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Here are two words you don't often hear together, Tourette's and hero. Well, one British woman has paired them to great effect. Here's the world's Patrick Cox. Jess Tom dresses like a superhero. Mask, shiny blue cape, the whole bit. She calls her alter ego Tourette's hero. Tourette's, I have Tourette's syndrome. Biscuit, which you can hear. Biscuit is... um involves vocal tics. Biscuit, which is why I say biscuit. Ha! Say cheap! Biscuit so much and other other noises and words. Tom is 31. She remembers having had tics from as early as age six, though she wasn't diagnosed until she was in her 20s. The tics are more severe these days. Tourette's is a condition that waxes and wanes. Biscuit, so it changes over the course of somebody's biscuit. Life and can change over months. Biscuit, but also tics can change over the course of biscuit of a day. Biscuit, and I have, ha, happy birthday. Happy birthday. I have regular tics. Biscuit, like biscuit and happy birthday. And a lot of things that we can't say on the air. 
Tom is among the minority of people with Tourette's who blurt out offensive language involuntarily. Her tics, whether offensive or not, are often very funny. There's a reason there are so many jokes about Tourette's. Tom welcomes the jokes. In fact, she likes to own them, hence her website, also called Tourette's Hero. The point of Tourette's Hero is to celebrate the creativity, biscuit, and humour of Tourette's and to Biscuit to reclaim the laughter associated with Tourette's Biscuit. Tourette's Hero isn't a a website, Biscuit, just for people with Tourette's. It's a website for everybody. On the site, Tom posts verbal tics that she's said. She invites people to vote for their favourite tics. Things like Batman breastfed my mum, I love you chemical weapon, and Lucy in the sky with pencils. People can also submit artwork to illustrate them. Tom delights in the poetry of her Tourette's. As she sees it, her condition opens doors. Her tick-filled conversations take her and others to unique places, and the website is part of that conversation. What we're trying to do is, I think, part of a greater awareness and movement from disabled people in speaking out and changing Biscuit attitudes towards disability through humour and creative means. Biscuit. Changing the world, Jess Tom says, one tick at a time. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. You can see pictures of Jess Tom and hear an extended conversation with her in our weekly podcast, The World in Words. Just go to theworld.org. Some doctors in Turkey are taking a musical approach to healing. The doctors at Memorial Hospital in Istanbul are performing live music for their patients. They say the healing power of music goes beyond psychological benefits, helping physiological problems, too. Matthew Brunwasser reports from Istanbul. The intensive care unit of Istanbul's Memorial Hospital looks like any modern hospital anywhere, but it definitely doesn't sound like one. I'm Professor Dr. Binger Sonmez. I'm a cardiac surgeon. I've been doing cardiac surgery more than 30 years. What we are doing in intensive care, we are playing Sufi music to our patient to calm down, to make them feeling much better. Sufism is a mystical strain of Islam whose traditional music is popular among Turks. Sonmez says that five centuries ago, when Europeans were burning people alive for having mental illnesses, the Turkish Ottoman Empire had a more civilized approach. In this country, in Ottoman Empire time, we used to treat the psychiatric patients with music in hospitals, in local hospitals. So what we are doing is the same. So doctors here don't consider themselves doing anything new. If you have a look at the patient's face, he feels very anxious. But after 10 minutes, you will see he's very much relaxed. After this short performance, anesthesiologist Errol John says the patient's heart rate decreased 15%. John says the approach has scientific backing. He says the hospital conducted a study of 22 patients and measured their stress levels on a scale of 1 to 10. Their stress went down from an average of 7 to 3 after a 20-minute musical performance. We recorded uh, heart rate, uh, systolic and di- diastolic blood pressure, respiratory rate, and the oxygen delivery, oxygen saturation of the blood. Every parameter was better 
after this 20 minutes. Sonmez and John demonstrate the traditional medicinal properties of different melodic systems, or makams in Turkish music. Sonmez says certain makams can treat specific conditions. This is sabah makam. That makam makes you sleepy. It's a real meditation music. So it's good when you go to bed to listen it. If you listen this makam when you are waking up, you can't get out of the bed. The mahur makam is the opposite of sabah, so it might make you agitated and unable to sleep. If you play that makam to a depressed patient, you can cheer him up easily. There are makams that can help with other conditions as well. One supposedly increases your appetite. Another can help you lose weight. The music has significant health results, the doctors say. But while they sing the praises of music therapy, they stress it's a complement, not a replacement, for conventional medicine. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Istanbul. Turkish music also held sway on at least one important American musician. At least that's what Levon Helm told me in February. Helm was one of the founding members of the Roots Rock group known simply as The Band. He died last week after a long battle with cancer. Helm had launched a series of concerts at his home in Woodstock, New York, to help pay his medical bills. After one of his final shows, or rambles as he called them, we sat in his kitchen, and I asked Levon Helm if he were younger where he'd look for Roots music today. You know, I heard uh, on the History Channel the other day, they were talking about the uh, Middle East War back in the uh, early 1900s, and they had the Turkish Army Band coming down the street playing this song, and it was as rootsy as you can get, and good music. They were on like a a three-beat, like... Levon Helm drummed and sang to the very end. He was 71. You can see my entire interview with Levon Helm at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, Arizona's tough immigration laws and the workarounds they've generated. One of them is being an independent contractor. As a self-employed individual, you're clearly not required to check the, uh, the work authorization of yourself. Immigration loopholes ahead on The World. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The Supreme Court heard arguments today about Arizona's controversial immigration bill. The justices aren't expected to rule on the measure, known as SB 1070, for several weeks. At issue is whether states can pass their own immigration control laws or whether federal law takes precedence. 
SB 1070 isn't the only law passed in Arizona to push illegal immigrants out. Other measures make it difficult for undocumented people to both work and study in the state. But while some immigrants have left Arizona, many have found ways to stay. From the Fronteras desk in Phoenix, Devin Brown has more. SB 1070's most powerful precedent is the 2007 Arizona Legal Workers Act. The act mandated all employers verify workers' Social Security numbers or risk fines and sanctions. Immigrant electricians like Alfonso, who asked that we use only his first name, were told by their bosses, you've got three months to bring me a good Social Security number or you got to get out. And I tell him, it's easy. Go to the, pick it up one Social Security. It's not easy. In fact, it was so not easy that Alfonso ended up doing exactly what Arizona legislators hoped. He left and moved to Texas. But all he found in Texas were more bosses who wanted a real Social Security number. In Texas, it's very difficult work in Arizona. In Arizona, you know what is, the, what is the city, what is... In Texas, you don't know nothing. So after three months, Alfonso came home. The lesson he'd learned is that he couldn't get a formal job in any other state, and the only people who would give him informal or cash jobs were the ones who know him. And the people who know him live in Arizona. The boss say, oh, it's okay. I pay cash, you know? And when the people work, everybody pay cash. Researchers at the Public Policy Institute of California who studied the effects of Arizona's Legal Workers Act found the law immediately reduced the unauthorized population by about 17 percent. But it also left immigrants like Alfonso with essentially two loopholes, work as an independent contractor or start your own business. The latter loophole was so popular that the percentage of self-employed undocumented immigrants doubled. Researcher Magnus Lofstrom has a good guess why. As a self-employed individual, you're clearly not required to check the, uh, the work authorization of yourself. Alfonso actually does both. He's an independent contractor handyman for a property management company, and he has his own company to do electrical work. His workarounds, though, are informal. He's relying on individual clients and bosses to bypass the rules. Other laws aimed at discouraging illegal immigration require a more institutional workaround, like, for example, Proposition 300. Passed in 2006, the proposition required all state colleges, including community colleges, to charge undocumented students non-resident tuition. For a student like Francisco Duran, this meant tuition went up by about 300 percent. They were indirectly telling us, you know, don't go to school, basically, because, I mean, $1,000 for one class is, is too much. Arizona was actually being pretty direct, but for Duran, there was no upside to leaving the state. He'd have to pay out-of-state tuition anywhere he went. Plus, he loves Phoenix. I love it, you know. Even after everything, this this is my hometown. Um, No matter what people tell me, you know, this is my town, this is where I grew up. No no matter if I'm driving and I see 10 sheriff's cars, you know, it's, it's normal for me. I love it here. I love everything about Arizona. Francisco says whatever laws the legislators pass, there will always be workarounds. In this case, the workaround is the Navajo Technical College. NTC is based in Crown Point, New Mexico, and because it's chartered through the Navajo Nation, its pay structure is based on tribal membership, not state residency. So Prop 300 doesn't apply. Navajo students pay $45 a credit, and everyone else, including undocumented students, pays $90 a credit which is essentially what community college credits used to cost undocumented students before Proposition 300. There are about 200 students enrolled at NTC's Phoenix campus right now, and almost all of them are undocumented immigrants. 
Cesar Valdez is one of them, and he's so excited about the college that he volunteers to make presentations at high schools to convince other immigrant students to sign up. One of the girls actually started crying because she was a senior, and she was like, I'm so glad you came because up to this day, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was thinking about moving to California, New Mexico, or even going back to Mexico. And with that, Valdez did exactly what the legislators behind the slew of immigration enforcement bills most fear. He gave another undocumented immigrant a reason and a way to stay. For The World, I'm Devin Brown in Phoenix. China is attempting a delicate balancing act in Africa. It's trying to mediate the explosive border dispute between Sudan and its now independent neighbor, South Sudan. Others are trying as well. Today, the African Union called for both parties to formally commit to peace within 48 hours. And the U.N. Security Council is demanding an end to aerial bombardments by northern Sudanese forces. But the world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing says China is best placed to calm the conflict. She says the Chinese stake in the dispute can be summed up with one word. Oil. China gets 5% of its oil imports from Sudan. Now, that's not a huge amount, but it's enough that it matters. It matters even more to Sudan because 60% of Sudan's oil that it exports is sold to China. But China also needs to very carefully calibrate its diplomacy here. It wants to keep good relations both with North and South Sudan, just like it does with North and South Korea. And uh, it's finding it a little difficult at the moment because South Sudan is saying, hey, what would really help us is if you would finance an alternative oil pipeline going straight out so that we don't have to go through Sudan Mm -hmm. and they don't try to take a huge cut of our profits just because we have a pipeline going through their territory. So if there's enough oil in the offing to make China uneasy if it doesn't get it, uh, can it uh, be a mediator between Sudan and South Sudan? Well, for starters, the Chinese foreign ministry announced today that China's special representative on African affairs, Zhong Jianhua, will be visiting both countries sometime soon to encourage peace talks. In the past, China has been able to make some difference in the region, in in Sudan, particularly in the run-up to the Olympics, but also at other times, by saying, you know, look, we need to be rational. We need to keep this region stable. If you want to have profits, and South Sudan certainly wants to profit from its oil industry because it gets most of its revenue from oil, Mm. you need to play a game that's sustainable. And what you're doing right now is not. I have to note, uh, Mary Kay, I was struck by photos of uh, Chinese President Hu Jintao and South Sudan's President Salva Kiir this week. We'll link to some of those pictures on our website. The visual contrast between the two men is pretty stark. What did you make of those images? Right. Well, so picture, if you will, Hu Jintao, who is a very buttoned up Chinese leader, a little bit pale in this particular photo. His body in the photo is straight on, not facing Salva Kiir as he's shaking his hand. Salva Kiir, on the other hand, looks almost wraithish. He's got this black cowboy hat. He's easily a whole head taller than Hu Jintao. And he has this sort of smirk on his face. He looks a little like the old Spice guy. Mm And how does that contrast with any body language you've seen recently between President Omar al-Bashir from Sudan and his Chinese interlocutors? Well, a warm uh, hello and usually some sort of an embrace. He's an old friend. And, uh, you know, China and Bashir, China and Sudan have done business for many years. In fact, the planes that have been strafing South Sudan, not just this week, but for a while, some of them, you know, were bought with money that came from profits from selling oil to China and our Chinese supplied. 
Interestingly, in one of the Chinese English language newspapers today, the Global Times, which is usually a pretty nationalistic newspaper,、mm. they ran、uh, an editorial by a South Sudanese freelancer, which was extremely critical of Sudan and of this strafing of South Sudanese territory. So it seems like, while at the official level the government is trying not to show any favoritism,、uh, it's letting it be known. Through alternative channels, that、uh, doesn't think that Khartoum's behavior is something to be praised. You know, China is mulling over this consequential issue in Africa. At the same time, it's got several other fires to put out at the moment.、Uh, break those fires down for us briefly. And is the pressure throwing a curveball at China right now? Right. So there's the one we're talking about, which is the conflict in the Sudan. There is the conflicting claims in the South China Sea, China and the Philippines going at it over a shoal that both of them claim, and every little bit of territory is something worth fighting over, as far as both sides are concerned, because it means access to oil in that area ultimately.、Mm-hmm. And then there's North Korea, which has become、uh, rather threatening all over again since its rocket didn't put a satellite into space as it had hoped. So there have been threats about turning Seoul into ash and possibly even. Striking the United States, and China's just kind of hoping this is another case of bravado that will pass. But it sounds like it's undue pressure on China right now. Are they dealing with it okay? It's a lot of balls to keep in the air juggling. This is a country that has become a, a major international power, and it has a say in what happens in different parts of the world where it has interests. Not so long ago, maybe a decade ago, China really tried not to get involved in other countries' internal affairs. Now it looks at something like Sudan and South Sudan and says, "Okay, so this is a war, or at least a, a conflict. But you know, we do have an interest here, and we do have to get involved. So you guys need to sort this out. But you need to protect our interests while you're doing it." The world's Asia correspondent Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Thank you very much for the update, Mary Kay. Thank you, Marco. If your name is Ahab, you might want to listen closely to today's geo quiz. Somewhere in the North Pacific, a team of scientists spotted a great white whale. In this case, an extremely rare adult white orca. The whale was seen a couple of summers ago near some islands off the coast of Kamchatka in the Russian Far East. The researchers captured some remarkable video of the creature. You can see it at theworld.org. But the rare orca has eluded them ever since. Well, this summer they're going back in hopes of having another encounter. In a minute, we'll hear from one of the lead researchers on the project. But first, we want you to name the islands around which the whale was seen. Again, they're off the coast of Kamchatka. These two small islands are actually the last outposts of the Great Aleutian Chain, which arcs westward from Alaska. Consult your globe quickly, though. We'll be right back with the answer. Okay, time's up. Eric Hoyt is co-director of the Far East Russia Orca Project. He helped identify that rare white orca whale back in 2010, and he's headed back to the area again this year. It was off the west coast of Bering Island, which is one of the Commander Islands, a couple hundred kilometers off the coast of Kamchatka. So the Commander Islands—that's the answer to our geo quiz today. Tell me why you're fascinated by this,、uh, what seems to be an albino orca. Well, we actually don't know if he's an albino. He's all white, but you'd really have to take a look at his eye. 
you know, to see if it was uh, pink and unpigmented. But the interesting thing is that we had, in fact, seen a couple of whitish animals in previous years, a calf and probably a young female. But we, we didn't know, you know, if their immune systems are compromised or, you know, whether they're living very long, as, as is the case with albinos. We do know from captivity that there was one white one taken in in 1970 that died after two years that did have, you know, compromised immune system. But, uh, you know, then to see this mature male, and you can tell from the two-meter-high dorsal fin that he's mature, mm. that means he's at least 16 years older than that, and he's healthy. So that's a really good sign. Safe to say that an all-white orca is pretty darn rare. Yes, very rare. I mean, to see one this brilliantly white, just with a normal pot around him, is a very striking uh, image, as you can see in the in the photos and the video. And you've already named this elusive whale, I understand. Well, we we like to give names for our whales. It helps us remember who they are. Although there's probably no problem remembering who the white one is, but. <laughs> Iceberg's not a bad name for any kind of, uh, well, for a white orca, because actually a lot of it is, you know, when you see their tall fin, that's really just the small part of their whole body. So, Eric, you're going out with the Far East Russia Orca Project uh, this summer to try and find this white orca. What's the plan to do that? Well, we'll be doing our work, which involves uh, photographing the dorsal fins uh, to find individual animals and recording them. We do a lot of uh, work on acoustics. And in the course of that, we will have our eyes peeled. If this is an albino orca, how do you suspect the life of an albino orca differs from uh, non-albinos? Well, we, we, don't, we really don't have any idea. It's, I mean, it, it looks like it's a fairly normal life, that they're accepted by their pod. I think that's actually more interesting than if it were an outcast, you know, I mean, you, we, you do see outcasts with other animals, but this isn't happening with, with Iceberg. He is right in the middle of that pod of 13 animals. You, you've called this white orca a breathtakingly beautiful animal. Uh, do you see yourself as a kind of Captain Ahab in this research story? How many times have you read Moby Dick? Mm, not for a while, but I dip <laughs> into it. it. It does have a kind of uh, raw power to it. And Herman Melville... You know, he did his homework and he he crammed a lot of facts into that book, you know, and for the time, it's astonishing. But he did vilify the white whale. You know, that's sort of the part that's not so great because actually what you learn when you spend a lot of time with whales is how extraordinarily gentle they are with each other and, and with scientists in boats. You know, it, they could so easily cause a lot of havoc. And, you know, they're right there, almost like models of how we humans could all live together. Eric Hoyt, co-director of the Far East Russia Orca Project, thanks very much for talking to us about this white orca, and good luck in finding it and maybe some others. Thanks a lot. Again, you can see some great video of the white orca shot by members of the Far East Russia Orca Project. That's at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Last week, two Cuban actors left Havana en route to a screening of their film at New York's Tribeca Film Festival. They disappeared during a layover in Miami. Javier Núñez Florian and Anailín de la Rua 
seem to have defected, though no one knows for sure since they haven't been seen since. Reporter Susan Stone interviewed the two actors and their British director last February at a film festival in Berlin, Germany. She describes the movie they made together, Una Noche. The film tells the story of a day in the life of twins Elio and Lila and their friend Raul. Raul and Elio are secretly building a raft to escape Cuba, and they're racing through the city trying to collect everything they need to build that, from wood to inner tubes to a GPS system and liquid glucose. Now, when the sister Lila finds out, they decide to bring her with on this dangerous 90-mile trek to Miami. You also interviewed Lucy Malloy, the director of Una Noche. She had lived in Cuba for some time before shooting the film, and she told you that her film reflects a sad reality in Cuba. There was one day when I was actually doing a casting, and an actor came in, and he asked me when we were going to be shooting, and I told him, as I was kind of telling everyone, I was always like, oh, in a couple of months, and he said that he wouldn't be around because he was making his own raft and that he would be leaving on that raft. That was something that I found kind of terrifying when you're in the in the middle of making a movie and you're kind of involved in it all but that happened on a, at a few different times. What's interesting Susan Stone is that uh, when you asked Anna Eileen whether the film presented a realistic aspect of life in Cuba this is what she had to say at first. Una noche eh, no es Cuba. Eh, una noche es una historia. She says, uh, Una Noche, the movie, is not Cuba. This is a story that the director wrote, and we are the characters who try to live this story as if these people really existed in real life. I think this story could happen anywhere in the world. But then she went on a bit later, Susan, to say that this situation did happen in real life, but not to all Cubans. So what did you think of this reaction at that moment, Susan? Well, uh, to be honest, you know, the question I asked them was, how does this film portray the Cuban they know? And since we see a lot of different things in the film, we see, sure, brutal police officers, we see mothers forced into prostitution, but we also see beautiful scenes and street culture and music. And I wanted to know, you know, what parts of this reflected her life. And, you know, the reaction I got was very, very defensive. And I could tell there was a bit of fear in there. Mm. Also, during the interview, Anna Eileen, uh, the actress, uh, also said she was hoping the film would open doors for her and her fellow actors. Do you think she was already thinking about leaving Cuba? You know, it, it's hard to say. Uh, the trip to Berlin was the first trip outside of Cuba for all of the actors involved. They were very excited to be there, but they were really, really very much looking forward to coming to New York. The U.S. did seem to be an important goal to them, but they were also happy to be representing the film. And Annalena, she thought the film is really the most important thing that's happened to her, you know, in all 20 years of her life. And with the current state of what's going on, I, I guess that's definitely been true for her. So, Susan, what did you think when you heard the news that Javier and Ana Eileen disappeared at Miami International Airport? Well, <laughs> it's filmic, all right. Um, I was very surprised by it. I know they do have a close relationship with Lucy Malloy, and this does leave her in a bit of a, a bind, in a sense, because it would be quite difficult, I imagine, for her to continue with the next film that she has planned for the series, Una Noche Mas, which was set to star both of those actors as well. Uh, but I'm from South Florida myself, and there's a very strong Cuban community there, and there's a lot of support for people who do leave Cuba. And um, I think going into the Miami International Airport, you see Cafe Cubano, you see um, guava pastries, you hear people speaking your language. And I can certainly imagine in their shoes, there's something very tempting about staying in that world and moving forward there. Reporter Susan Stone in Berlin, thank you very much for telling us about uh, your meeting with these two actors and, and director of Una Noche. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Marco. 
You can find out more about the making of Una Noche. We have a video with director Lucy Malloy and scenes from the film at theworld.org. Most Cuban artists don't have the chance to leave the island, even if they don't quite fit in there. David Peisner, contributing editor for Spin Magazine, just met some very dedicated metalheads in Havana, both musicians and fans. And Peisner says they mean business. They're very hardcore. I mean, you, you definitely find metal scenes all over the world. But what attracted me to Cuba was just that every song I heard out of there was just really, really extreme black metal, which is sort of this satanic metal and then death metal. And uh, I mean, it's really something to hear. Um, And, you know, when you go down there and you meet these guys, I mean, they're decked out wearing all black, long black hair, uh, black concert T-shirts from concerts they never could have possibly have gone to. It's quite a scene. And they haven't gone to those concerts because those artists don't go to Cuba and they can't leave the country to see them. Exactly. Introduce us to one of the bands and one of the tunes that you, you found down in Cuba. There was a band called Escape, which was a, a pretty popular metal band down there. And their songs are, are notable because they have a lot of political content. In, in Cuba, a lot of political content means shaded meanings. One song that really sh- struck me was a song called Aora o Nunco, Now or Never. And it's kind of a good example of that. That's the Cuban metal band Escape. Uh, David DePizer, in the context of Cuba and 50-plus years of government restrictions on free expression, why is there this deep, extreme take uh, on metal, even if it's among a small percentage of the population? Well, you know, I, I asked that to almost everyone I spoke to down there, and uh, the, the, the general feeling is just that, you know, when you bottle something up, when you express yourself, it, it's going to be loud and extreme. I remember one one guy I talked to in a, in a band called Ancestor. He had said, you know, the music is extreme because our lives are extreme. So rock and roll was actually outlawed in Cuba. You make that point in your article in Spin in the 1960s. And yet the government is now subsidizing these bands. What's up with that? Everything in, in Cuba is pretty much, you know, government run still. And, uh, I think that the reason why these uh, metal bands eventually sort of got their what's called the Cuban Rock Agency to represent them and and kind of make them, quote unquote, professionals. Wait, the Cuban government has a rock agency? Yes. It's called the Cuban Rock Agency. And they're essentially work is, I guess you'd think of it like as a booking agent or a promoter. Mm. The bands who are signed up with the agency are, are drawing a government salary. But the reason why I think it exists is almost a clever little uh thing done by the Cuban government, you know, they've given this metal scene a little a little bit of oxygen so they can kind of keep an eye on them and keep them under control at the same time. Well, David, let's go out with a track uh, by the band Hypnosis. It's called Fear to Change. It's in English. Can you give us a, a quick line on the song to take us out, David? It's a band speaking about the problems in Cuba, but having to do so in a very sort of generic way and not sort of pointing fingers too boldly in order to uh, be able to keep being a band. David Peisner, contributing editor for Spin Magazine. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. David Peisner's article, Red Menace, on the metal scene in Cuba, is in the new edition of Spin. That's our program today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the United States Institute of Peace, helping to prevent, manage, and resolve violent international conflict. Online at usip.org. And the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and the Carnegie Corporation. PRI Public Radio International.